chapter 20. Let's open with prayer. Father, we pray that there would be no confusion. We pray that there would only be understanding and edification. We pray that each one of us, Lord, would be encouraged in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 29. And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sat sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou Son of David. And Jesus stood still, and called them, and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you? They say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them, and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. We're going to talk about getting answers to prayer, and probably with an emphasis on healing, because in the Gospels we have so many examples of Jesus praying for people to be healed. And so you have a lot of examples of prayer working. And one of the things that always seems to jump out, if you set all your preconceived ideas aside and start researching in your Bible what it says about prayer and about healing, you'll come to a conclusion, if you're objective, that the Bible always makes it sound simple. It really doesn't paint a picture of it not working. And yet, how do most of us, if we were asked, if we were just to close the book and let's stop talking about this and maybe wait an hour and come back and then interview each one of us, what would we say about, well, getting your prayers answered for healing? I think our first thought that jumps into our mind, well, I know somebody that didn't get healed once and I, I prayed once when I was a kid. All these different things that show up in our life and our first inclination is, this stuff really doesn't happen. But biblically speaking, and that's what we try to do here, is just what does the Bible say about it? In this example, these two men that need healing, it's interesting to me in verse 32 that Jesus asks them a question, What will ye that I shall do unto you? Now we know from reading everything else in the Bible that Jesus could read men's thoughts. He knew stuff before they asked it. He is God in the flesh. And the Bible teaches us clearly that God knows everything. Even if he didn't know everything, he can tell by looking. These men just cried out, and the crowd told them to be quiet, stay in your place. He knows that they're blind. And he asks them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Now, how do you reconcile that? To me, this is God's way in his writing in his Bible to point something out to us. He doesn't mind us asking. In fact, it may very well be that by design he wants these two men to ask him for their healing. You can go down the line of logic a long ways here. What if Jesus had never even turned around, never made eye contact, never took a step toward them? He just walked by, kept going, and maybe ten minutes later they were healed. There's maybe a chance they wouldn't associate their healing with something Jesus did for them. And the idea that paints the picture that they came and asked Jesus asked them, what do you want? 
See, God always wants us to associate His works with Him. Well, if we don't close this down too early, we'll get to a point where the Pharisees got to the point where they did the opposite. They saw Jesus heal people or cast out devils, and who did they attribute it to? The devil or Satan. And that's when Jesus said something that got... I think most people don't really understand it when they read it in the Bible today. Jesus talked about the unforgivable sin in just a few verses after that. And he said, you sin against the Holy Ghost, it'll never be forgiven of you. Even though all kinds of blasphemy and all kinds of sin will be forgiven. He said this one. And what he was pointing out was, when God does something miraculous, it's not good. He doesn't appreciate it if the devil, his enemy, gets credit for it. He wants mankind to always glorify him, look toward him to be moving in his direction. One reason I point out this idea that it seems kind of simple here. It says in verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. If you've read a lot of your Bible and you hear that idea mentioned that, well, this seemed kind of simple, maybe something's jumping in your mind because it didn't always work out this way or it didn't transpire this way. Jesus healed people in a lot of different ways. There were times he literally spit in someone's eye. There were times he spit in the mud or in the dirt and made some mud and put that on someone's eyes. There were times he told people to go wash something off in water. And the Bible says that as they went, they were healed. We'll probably get to one where it says that Peter's mother-in-law had a fever and it says Jesus touched her hand and she was healed. We have stories in the Old Testament where a man with leprosy was told by a minister of God, a prophet, you go dip in the Jordan seven times. He had to count. He had to do the right number. Why all these strange mechanisms, avenues to getting your prayer answered? Let's just stop and wait on that. Let that say, why would God do it different almost every single time? Because if he always touched someone's left earlobe, what would mankind do? We're, we're really bad at this. We start worshiping an idol. We make something that God didn't want attention to, and we'd all walk around with our left earlobes up to heaven, or every preacher, please touch my left earlobe, but the Bible would have never said that. He did it different every time, just so that we wouldn't fall into the trap of, it has to be done this way. If somebody's going to pray, they've got to put their left pinky out. Or they've got to have change in their right pocket. There's no specific mechanism how Jesus ever healed people, physically. There's nothing physically that had to be done the same way every time. Now see, that, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing, because whatever you have in your life, even if it's not healing, if you need an answer to prayer... He can do it in any possible way. And the good thing about that is we lay awake at night and we rack our brains. How is this going to work out? How, how is God going to help me through this? And you don't have to know. That's the point, really. What you do need to take care of on your part, on my part, is just trust Him. Just believe when you pray. It's really, we're, I'm jumping ahead, but when you get down to it, you wipe away everything else. What does He ask of us? Our part is to believe Him. 
Yeah. We're going to go through a lot of different examples. I want you to be sensitive as we read through these different individuals. How did they get healed? What did they do well, on their part? These two guys did what? They asked. And they didn't shut up because some people said, it's not your time. Be quiet. It says they cried out the more. Now that tells you at least, we know for sure, they thought Jesus could do something. They had, that's a picture of faith. It's an image of faith. Because they wouldn't have done that. They didn't do that for Bob the Builder when he walked by or Jerry the Mayor. They did it because they heard Jesus was coming and they associated him with, he can help us. And that's faith. They believed and their actions corresponded to that. We're going to go a lot of different examples. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We make you, maybe should have just made an entire list of the different, the strange ways. There's one place in the book of John where it says an angel at a certain time every year would come down and he'd stir the water in one of these public pool areas. And the Bible says that whenever that happened, when the water was stirred, the first person that got up and got in the water was made whole of anything that afflicted them. Now, I'll admit, that's strange. It really is. That's, that, that's weird. It's strange. And again, why would God do that kind of stuff? He doesn't want to be roped into one way. It has to look like this. He can do it any way that he wants. And what's pretty neat about God is he usually does. Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. Um, verse 5. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now, what is a centurion? Is that a plumber? It's a soldier. This is a Roman soldier. Rome is the ones who controlled the area. This Roman soldier saying in verse 6, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Wow. Wow. Talk about comforting words. I will come and heal. I'm, I'm so thankful the Bible doesn't record conversations where Jesus would say, well, you haven't done your 50 push-ups today. But you need to do such and such. He didn't have a bunch of requirements. What did he say? See, it, he, he really makes it simple. I'll come and heal him. So this centurion, he's got exactly what he's looking for. The centurion answered and said, Lord... I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. You can never express how remarkable this verse is. This man, as the creator of the universe, agreed to come heal his servant. He agreed. And the servant, the centurion says, You don't have to come. All you have to do is say the word, and that, that's good enough for me. Now, people, if that would have been me, I would have had log chains in the back of my truck to hook onto his arms, his wrists, to drag him to where I needed him to go. Jesus agrees to come there, and every person in this, in all the Gospels, if they ever get Jesus to where that he needs to be, everybody, they all know, he, Lazarus is either being raised or dead, somebody's getting healed, it's going to happen because the master's here. He agrees to come. And what's this guy say? I'm not worthy. You don't even have to come under my roof. Now, what does that tell us about this man? 
There's the word, humility. You know, you, you do a study in your Bible of when people get something from God, humility is a fantastic ingredient. God loves the humble. And you can go even the contrarian of that. The Bible goes out of its way to tell us he hates the proud. He hates it. He cannot stand mankind thinking he has everything he needs. He's capable of taking care of what he needs. He loves humility. Sometimes it says it like this. He is close to them of a contrite heart, a broken heart, a broken spirit. What it's talking about is somebody that recognizes, I may have dated the girl I liked in high school, but I have really nothing in this life without you. That without God, I have nothing. That's humility. It's a recognition that I've got to have him. And this guy says, I'm not even worthy. You're fantastic. You don't need to come under my roof. You just speak the word only and he'll be healed. Now there's the second part you learn from this. He had humility, but he wasn't... Sometimes you get a false image and a false definition of humility. He was also very confident in something. What was he confident in? He was confident in that man in sandals standing next to him. That if you just say the word. You know, that tells me this guy's been around. He's either heard a lot about Jesus. He's been around him. He's watched Jesus. Because, you know, the Bible tells us that God created the whole universe just by speaking. And there's tons of examples throughout the Gospels where Jesus said something. Remember one time he rebuked a storm. And it went quiet. He talks to fig trees and they shrivel up. What he says happens. This guy was a studying, observational kind. He watched that guy. You just say it, sir, and that's good enough for me. This is remarkable. Now, put yourself in this position. Say you've got a sick child. And back then, when somebody got sick, you didn't go to the pharmacy to get something that would cure them. People died of small things all the time. Drink out of the wrong water dish. And this guy, a Jesus, agreed to come to his house and he said, don't need to. Verse 9, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I tell them, go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great what? Faith. No, not in Israel. You want an image, a picture of faith? This guy's it. He only needed to hear what the Master said. And this is why we study our Bible so much. Because what is this a book of? It's the things that God has said. Extrapolate this. If you know what God has said, and you put faith in that, you're, you're kind of in this centurion's shoes. That's all he did. He got from Jesus what he wanted for him to tell him that his servant would be healed. That was good enough. And people, the Bible is the written word of God. It's what he has said to us. There's a big lesson in that to extrapolate that out. That's why you, it, you need to know what's in here. The Bible says that you perish for a lack of knowledge. His people do. A lack of knowledge of what? Of 
anthropology, a lack of knowledge of science, a lack of mathematical... No, they probably perished for a lack of biblical knowledge what he said. You know, it makes a difference when you know it. Now you have something to put your faith in because this, this centurion, he's walking home and he's repeating over in his head. You can see it. The master said he's healed. That was good enough. Let's go down to verse 14. When Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. She arose and ministered unto them. Keep in mind what we said at the beginning. You be sensitive as we go through these stories. How did these people get healed? How did they get their prayer answered? It's different in every single case. And I think it's by design. So that we don't ever fall into the trap and get so myopic with our view and an expectation that it has to be done a certain way. I'm going to come back to that idea that it doesn't have to be done the way that you maybe picture it, the way you think it has to be done. Verse 16, When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Thankfully, Tiff bought me this new Bible, but there's a bad part. I, the, the notes I had in my other ones are not in this. I remember once going through the Gospels to find all verses like that where it says that everybody... Everybody in the nearby villages came out to him and, he, and the Bible says in those verses he healed every single one. That's what that says right there. He healed all that were sick. Now, why is that important to get an image in your mind or to kind of meditate on that? Again, it makes it sound simple, doesn't it? You can't help but get a higher degree of faith toward God than picturing every single person. didn't matter what it was. And keep in mind, back then, they, there weren't vaccines. They had a lot of strange stuff floating around. A lot of stuff that even a thousand years after this, it would get into a population and half or a third of the people would die. The cleanliness part of the technology hadn't really been invented too much yet. He healed every single problem. Verse, let's see, verse 28, um, let's go to chapter 9, chapter 9 and verse 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city, and behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now if you, are a, if you pay attention to what you read, there should be a problem, there should be a red flag, a light going off. These guys asked for the friend that they brought, heal him. And what is the subject Jesus is talking about? Sins. This is strange. Why, why, why is he diverting now attention? <laughs> Maybe he doesn't want to heal today and he knows he can't. And so he's just trying to get their attention on something else. No. The next verse, Behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Blaspheme means you're making yourself to be God when you're not. 
Because he has just said, your sins are forgiven. Now see, can you visually see with your eyes when someone's sins are forgiven? No. You may be able to see the result of it, possibly, in their behavior. That's even stretching it. The point is, as Jesus says here in the next verse, he knew their thoughts, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts, for whether it is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. Now what's he getting at? What he's saying to these people that don't believe him is, it'd be real easy for me to just say, your sins are forgiven and me walk on. Because would they be able to check on that? Would they be able to confirm that? See, it's invisible. So if Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven and walks on, and people, they can't confirm it. So Jesus points out, he says, it's harder to do what? To tell this guy to pick up his bed and walk. It's harder to heal somebody because the people will know whether or not this guy gets healed. Either he's still laying there sick of the palsy or he's not. So Jesus tells them, listen people, I'm going to do the harder so that you guys will know what? That he does have power to forgive sins. So Jesus, verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. He arose and departed to his house. See, he chose to do the hard, at least in the eyes of the people. Very difficult. Any time Dick and Harry could have walked by and said, your sins are forgiven, you left him. And nobody would have known whether or not, well, the, the sin's really forgiven. So Jesus heals the man so that the, everybody there knows whatever this guy says, it happens. I believe he heals or he forgives sins. He has the ability to do that because he's doing the hard stuff that you can't fake. Hmm. Verse 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. How about that? So did his disciples. The people are going to follow. Somebody just came and said, my daughter is dead, but I still want you to come. Now there's another picture of faith, isn't it? To know that she's already stopped breathing. There's probably some people, maybe everybody in the family that wants to start the burial process. The things that have to be done for that. And this guy says, no, I'm going to go get the master. Now that's faith. There is no, nothing on earth that is telling anybody that, well, she's coming back. Nothing. That's what's so final about death. Even the disciples, we're not missing this one. We're going to go watch. Verse 20, Behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him. This is as he's walking. And touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment... I shall be made whole. This, re- this part, this woman coming in the crowd, it tells us in other Gospels that there was tons of people around because it just said everybody's following Jesus. She comes 
and she touches him. And when Jesus turns around in the other gospel, it says, Jesus said, who touched me? And everybody, the disciples are wondering, what are you talking about? You're being thronged with people. Everybody's touching you. And Jesus told him, but I felt virtue go out of me. And he draws attention to this woman. But what I want you to notice about this woman, she said within herself. In this example, we have got, there's faith. And it's not just Jesus deciding this woman needs to be healed. She hasn't even talked to him. If he's not omniscient, omnipotent, if he doesn't know everything, he doesn't even know that she needs it. What I'm pointing out is, it was all on her end on this. Not that she healed herself, but the faith part, the believing part. This reminds me of T.L. Osborne, a wonderful minister that held a lot of healing revivals in Africa, I believe, for the most part. I remember him telling a story, a testimony once, and I'm almost certain that it took place in Africa. The meeting had been over. They had uh, prayed for so many people and, and seen some wonderful things. And he was tired. I mean, can you imagine, you know, sometimes around the stage for three hours and praying, touching thousands of people, praying over and over. Your mouth gets dry. Your tongue feels like it's swelling up. And he just wanted to go rest. And this woman came up to him, got through the security guards, got past his handlers, and got to him and said, I want you to pray for my child. And when he looked at the child, there were, there were not only no eyes, there were no eye sockets. And he said the first thing that came into his mind was, I don't have faith to pray for that. The first thing. Now he's seen a lot of things in life. And he said the first thing I thought was, and he was physically tired. And when your body is physically tired, you mentally, emotionally, sometimes spiritually, you get a little wore down. And he just wanted to rest. But he kept looking at that woman and he thought, this woman has got faith. And he thought, I don't want to pray for her because you know, if it doesn't happen, that's not always good on your resume. But he said, he realized it's not about him. It's not always about the preacher. In fact, it's always about God. The preacher is just the vessel that it can happen through. But what he was doing telling this story was to try to tell all of us that sit there and listen to him is that don't get so enamored with the preacher, the minister. Sometimes they have nothing, really. Sometimes they even want to be somewhere else. He admitted to it. But he decided to put his hands out and to pray for this little girl. And guess what happened? Nothing right there. That woman left. But he was not there for just one night. She came back. And the next time he saw that child, there was these things that were forming in her skull. Those eye sockets over the coming days formed. And after that, the eyeballs formed and that child could see. Now, the point of that is, sometimes the faith isn't always where you think it is. This woman came behind Jesus in the crowd because she said within herself, I know it. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. You know, when we pray for people, yes, we want faith in the room. We want to be believing because if we get there, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us, to command us that what should we do when we pray for something? 
Should we just say it seven times because seven's a magical number? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say it to say enough times to just satisfy God. It doesn't say that either. It tells us that when we pray, believe that you will have those things that you pray and you shall have them. We're commanded to believe, to put faith in it. Sometimes in these stories, it's Jesus because sometimes he's praying for a dead person. And the dead isn't sitting there thinking, I'm the one with all the faith. Of course not. This woman snuck up behind Jesus, knew in her heart, if I, if I can just get to him. She had something in her that I know, I believe it. That was her image of faith. If I can just touch the hem of his garment. Now we know how this story ends. Verse 22, Jesus turns about when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Now, we need to be careful that you don't just read verse 22 alone out of the Bible and then think, well, unless the person being prayed for has faith, they'll never be healed. That they're the only one. They've, you've got to get that person to believe, otherwise don't even pray. Remember, that's how it happened in this example. In other ones, maybe he's praying for someone who's deaf who can't even hear the word of God. They can't even hear what Jesus wants to do for them, and yet he healed them. What I'm saying is the deaf person probably didn't have faith. They hadn't been sitting there listening to Jesus teaching all day and had their faith build up. They probably didn't know any of it. All they knew is, boom, my ears popped open because the Master's here. There's something to take out of verse 22. Jesus did tell her, your faith has made thee whole. And it's a fabulous thing to have faith of ourselves. Absolutely. But what if you're asked to pray for somebody or about something that those people really didn't have faith? Should we just say, well up to them we can still pray Jesus did that all the time I'm really getting at there is not a set equation there is not a 2 plus 2 always equals 4 in this faith can come in different areas Jesus does it in different ways and as we saw he doesn't even have to be there remember the centurion you don't even need to come to my place you just say the word, and that's good enough for me. I know she's healed. Don't put God in a box. This is probably as good a time as any, for, just for my two cents in this. You guys all see this, the seven kids that sit there. It didn't start out so rosy for us. When the oldest, Anna, was born, the day that she was born, she could not keep anything down. Anything, anything she tried to eat would come back up, and finally she got to the point just as a little tiny infant that you could tell she didn't want to try to put anything down because it hurt. There was something, something wrong. The doctor said, well, let's do an exploratory surgery. We'll just open up, peek in there to see. There's probably some blockage. We'll remove a tiny bit, put it back together, and probably fine. That's what they were expecting. When they opened her up as a one-day-old baby, they, what they came out and told us was her entire small intestine was black that a blood vessel leading to it had gotten kinked and it died. Now, I don't know if doctors always say this, but they, we know they use the words bugs. So your small intestine has a lot of bacteria. It breaks stuff down. 
They use the word bugs as if this material had been decayed. So their immediate concern, obviously you have to have a small intestine, otherwise you can't live, but their immediate concern was that decayed material infection. She's, they told us, be prepared, she could die tonight from infection. They were going to immediately start to fight against infection, which, of course, never came. Now, all these examples of these people of faith where God said, you know, your faith made you whole. Guess what big Mr. Man of Faith did when I heard that from the doctor? Jumped up and grabbed him by the throat and I rebuked the devil. No, I did not. I was in a puddle of tears on the floor, basically in my mother's lap. Because it doesn't always happen the same way. Now, I did get a glimpse of Mother Bear sitting back there on my way to the floor. And I knew in that floor, in a fetal position, the devil was about to get his teeth kicked in. Because Jennifer didn't cry right away. What she did was pray. We had about 30 members of our extended family that were there. And I don't know the spiritual condition of all of them or what church they all go to, but everybody got down and prayed. The doctor told us we had to sign some stuff because they had to give her a ton of blood. And they came out three hours later to tell us that some parts of the ends had started to, to pinken up. 10%. The rest of the 90%, they cut it out and threw it in a bucket, gone. And that's what we're faced with, one day old. They told us that we're going to have to have a transplant, which means you've got to stay in this hospital until some other kid dies and we can use their small intestine. Half of those transplants don't work. The ones that do work, you're still in and out of the hospital because your body rejects that thing. It maybe even try to fight it off because it's a foreign substance. So they did not paint a very rosy picture. In fact, they, thought they tried to prepare us with a decent chance she could die tonight. Everything, after they came out of the surgery, things really went very well for, for quite a while, considering that she has a tube down her throat, it's breathing for her, and she was like that in intensive care for quite some time. Several weeks go by, and Jennifer and I had just in discussing, or we just felt like all of a sudden it just occurred to us one day, we, we don't really know how to explain this, we didn't feel like it was God's will for us just to wait around there until some kid died to have their small intestine. People, I have no problem with that. I am amazed, I'm so thankful of what doctors could do that it is possible to put Randy's heart in mine and I could actually live on that cold, dead thing. <laughs> doctors can do amazing things. And I'm thankful they can do that. But something just came over us to believe for something better and we didn't tell our parents, we didn't tell anybody. The next day, the doctor, the, the, the specialist in charge of the whole deal, called us in and said, you know, this girl is just doing pretty darn good. We're going to send you home like this. And I, for, what they had done, they put a tube in by her heart that ran into a backpack that we wore. And in that backpack was all the nutrition she would need. It pumped it right next to her heart so her heart would pump it throughout her body. She couldn't eat anything orally. We went home like that for eight months. Eight months, every night we would change that out, mix all those vitamins, put it together, and that's how we lived. At the eight-month point, the site where that went into her body got infected. We noticed it's getting red, it's starting to puff up. Some germ got in there and it's getting infected. And the thought of going back to that hospital was not a good thought. I don't know if you've ever had to spend weeks in the hospital at a time. 
For me, it's like prison. You can't go anywhere. There's nothing to do but sit there and look at death all around. When Anna was in intensive care, how many other babies died all around here? Three? And there's only nine to twelve of them in there? I mean, that's, it's the worst of the worst. And the thought of going back there just grated on me. I would have done anything. Even living as we were with a tube in my daughter's chest, I would much rather take that. But back we go. We're hoping they'll take that out, clean it, maybe put it in a different spot, send us home again. We go to the hospital and the doctor does exactly that. He says, we have to clean this and we'll put it somewhere else. When they took it out, the doctor came out and said, she's really doing okay. We're going to send you home like this. And at this time now, they had put the, what's the two ends of her intestine back together with a little... Uh, they, they just put that back together. And we started feeding her orally just by droplets. Droplets. Drops at a time to get her stomach used to it. She had never taken anything orally. That was when she was eight months old. That is the last time she has ever seen a doctor in her life. We've never gone for a flu shot. She's never had a checkup. They've never taken an x-ray to say, how is this possible? You can't live on 90% of your small intestine. The reason I tell you that story, if you would have asked me, hey, you can, the thing to be watching for, you'll know that she's healed, is when you've got to go back to the hospital again. When that sucker gets infected, you just praise God. Of course, people, that was the last thing I wanted to hear. But had that not happened, we'd still be at home, maybe with a a tube in her chest thinking this is the best we can do. You never know how God is going to get you where you need to go. Never. And again, it wasn't, I sure don't feel like it was the wonderful faith of preacher man standing up here in front of you. I don't. I will tell you this much. We had one great advantage. Jennifer and I both were absolutely convinced that God still heals. There was nothing to overcome that we had been taught, that we were raised, that, well, God just doesn't do anything. I mean, when the apostles died out, that's when this stuff ended. And one of the reasons, when we go through these stories, and I try to make it sound just as simple as it does, that Jesus just touched them and they were healed. Sometimes it is that simple. And there's no reason to complicate it. We don't know how God does all this stuff. The Bible just tells us that when you pray, you should believe that you have the things that you pray for. And you know whose job is the rest of all of it? It's out of your hands. It's in God's hands. There's an important example in the Bible about a woman that goes to a judge and in teaching about prayer, Jesus, this, he says, this judge is even unjust. He's not even a God-fearing person. And it says that when the judge hears this woman come to his door, he says within himself, in his own heart, he says, I know that woman. And the word is importunate, that he knows she's not going to stop. That he knows he can't just send a servant, give her a few crumbs, and she'll be good. He knows that she's going to keep knocking until he goes down there and answers her plea as a magistrate, as a judge. And Jesus used that as an example to teach us something about praying, that we don't give up. 
and we don't just think, well, maybe it's just not for me. That's a, it's a diseased way of thinking, biblically speaking. Whenever you read your Bible, it only paints this in one way, that, that God heals people. There was one verse that I didn't go to that we maybe should have. Matthew chapter 13, verse 58. We at least need to get this on record. Matthew chapter 13. And the few verses before that in verse 54, it says, when Jesus was coming to his own country. So he's going back home where he grew up. He teaches them in the synagogue. In verse 55, this is what the people said. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? They said, how can this guy say these things? We know who he is. There's nothing special about him. He's the carpenter's son. Did anybody think he was the son of God? See, he, they knew him because he grew up there. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 57 that a prophet is not without honor except where? In his own town. Because, see, they know... Where you grew up, people know some of the dumb things you did. You can move to a new town and you can tell them you're a CIA agent. You can tell them you're a Green Beret. They really can't find out whether you are or not. But the people that grew up with you, they know you. And what these people, they thought they knew Jesus. Well, that guy, he grew up and he was born out of wedlock with the carpenter. We know who his sisters are. He's nothing special. And look what it says about that. They were offended at him. Verse 58, And he did not many mighty works because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. They didn't think he was the Son of God. One of the best ingredients you have when you go to prayer is to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. You know, if you've got that down... You have the biggest ingredients. The Bible goes out of its way. The belief on our part is believe in Him. Believe in who He said. If you really do an in-depth study of prayer in the Bible, you'll come to this headline. Have faith in God. In God. Not in your dynamic prayers, which the Bible teaches us, a good effectual prayer of a fervent person, it's fantastic. But the formula isn't in you. It's dependent on God. That's why we go to Him in prayer and in humility, but in confidence. Lord, I'm coming to you because I know you're the only one that can do this. You're the only one that can do this. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for what we have read in your Bible, and we pray that each one of us would be confident that we would, in our prayer life, approach you with faith. We pray, Father, for Pastor, that where he is, that you would be with him, that you would minister in his meetings with him, Lord, that you would bring him home safe to us, that we may hear his report. In Jesus' name, amen.